Let's pray together. Lord, speak your word to us. Your servants are listening. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning to you again. As you know by now, throughout Lent, we are looking at five spiritual practices. Practices that are essentially a means of grace to us. They're a way in which God's grace comes to us for the purpose that we would experience transformation, that we would become more like Jesus. Today, we're looking at the spiritual practice of giving. And while giving can be talked about very broadly, you know, giving whatever it is that we might have, today we're going to talk about the, giving, the practice of giving specifically as it relates to our material resources. Our theme verse for this Lenten series is from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. The beginning part of it goes like this, and some of you I know have it memorized already. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. My question to begin with is, how does this relate to the practice of giving? How does it relate to the practice of giving? To give it, get at that question, we have to begin, as, as Titus does in this verse, with grace. For the grace of God has appeared. Grace is a revolutionary idea. Even though it speaks about deep truths about the reality of God, it's, it's not readily understandable to our fallen human minds. We, we don't get it. We resist it. Even among Christians, grace isn't always known for what it is. I've known some pretty mean Christians who did so in the name of grace. So what is grace? There are, different, there are different ways to describe what grace is, but here's how I want to do so this morning. Grace is good given in love to the undeserving. Good given in love to the undeserving. Grace is specifically intrinsic to God himself. God is good, God is love, and God is giver. So God gives his goodness out of his love, and that's grace. In fact, you might not have recognized this yet, but in our doctrine of God as Trinity, our understanding of God's nature as three persons in one is also connected to this idea of self-giving love and goodness. In other words, God gives himself within himself. He gives himself within himself. The reason this is worth mentioning is because fundamentally grace is not something that just exists in our world. It's not just out there for you to point at. It's actually the very reason for our world's existence. The whole universe is an outworking of God's grace. Now, theologically speaking, we make a distinction between two different kinds of grace in Scripture. Scripture identifies two, common grace and special grace. Common grace is, is the goodness which God gives to everything that He's made. Each person, regardless of whether they acknowledge God's goodness, can see it and experience it. Life is a grace, beauty is a grace, love is a grace, friendship and pleasure and provision. These are all graces, and everybody receives them, unmerited, as it were. Now, sin is a, a rejection of this common grace, especially. It's a rejection of what God does in the world that is good and out of love, and doing so puts us out of relationship with God. And Scripture teaches us that without God's intervention, we don't have a hope for redemption. This is where that second kind of grace comes in, special grace. This is what Titus is talking about. For the grace of God has appeared. Common grace 
was there before the foundation of the world in some senses. Special grace is the appearing of Christ for the redemption of the human race. And that's the embodiment of special grace. It's, it's literally the embodiment of grace is Jesus Christ, the incarnate God. Paul writes in Romans 3, verses 22 to 25, For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, to be received by faith. That's special grace. So by now we can see how the ultimate example of grace, good given in love to the undeserving, is Christ in the gospel. God gave us himself. And so the gospel provides us with a foundation with which to talk about giving. Today I want to share three main points about how the practice of giving trains us. How it trains us. Number one, Giving trains us to receive God's grace. Giving trains us to receive God's grace. The doctrine of God's grace teaches us that God made all things, that God owns all things, that God gives all things, even himself. And if we can come to a place where we understand that, because not everyone does, then we can see ourselves the way that God sees us. Meaning the goodness that we have uh, as human beings is not inherent in us. It's derived from God's goodness and His image stamped upon us. The good things that we make in our lives come from the good things that God already made. The good things that we own come from the things that God owns and gave to us. What this means ultimately is that our entire existence finds its source in God. He is our source, the first cause it also means we don't have a right to God's grace. We can't claim it, whether it's common grace or special grace, because it's grace. In our second lesson from this morning, Paul in Romans chapter 1 talks about in, in very graphic terms how all of us, all of us, if you read Romans chapter 1 and you're thinking, man, look at the evil out there and not in yourself, you've read it wrong. Paul talks about how all of us, without exception, daily reject God's commands in favor of what we desire. Romans 1's about us. And this fact reveals in an even more certain fashion what is the nature of God's grace. It's good given in love to the undeserving. To the undeserving. In order to repent of our sin and turn to God in faith, what this means is that we first have to learn how to give. Now, that may sound off to you, but bear with me here. Namely, we have to learn how to give up everything that has kept us from God. To repent means we turn away from the sin which we're following, and we turn to God instead. That movement, that movement of repentance, it means surrender. It means we, we lay down whatever it was that we were after, and instead we turn to Christ. And in many ways, we submit those things to Him which means that we actually can't receive God's grace in the first place without giving. Now, remember this morning, we're talking about the spiritual practice of giving as it relates to our material possessions. So how does giving our material possessions train us to receive God's grace? Let's look at the story of Scripture. From the very beginning, giving is tied to worship. 
It's tied to following God. Even before the law of Moses was ever established, and Leviticus has all sorts of special laws about how giving would take place within the people of Israel. Even before that, giving offerings and sacrifices is understood to be a part of worship to God. Whether that's Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. Cain killed Abel about the sacrifice. That's why he, he was so upset. Noah in Genesis chapter 8. Abraham several times in, in Genesis 22, for example. Jacob in several places, Genesis 31, for example. Each of these individuals were offering a portion of their material possessions, whether that was produce or animals, as an act of worship. Additionally, again, before the law was ever given, in Genesis 14, there's this fascinating story about Abraham and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, who is said to be a priest of God Most High. And what we see Abraham, Abraham do is to give Melchizedek a tenth of whatever he owns, which is pretty much like the precursor to the tithe. After God graciously delivered his people from captivity in Egypt and then gave them the law, which we can read about in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and so on, these practices of giving tithes and offerings were standardized. You knew what was expected in the ritual worship of God. Now, as God's people were supposed to understand through these things that God did not need their possessions, as if the God of the universe was somehow dependent upon them to survive, they also were not supposed to understand that, that somehow they were earning God's favor. Remember, before the law was ever given, God saved them. They got delivered, not because they were obedient, but because they had faith. Tithes and offerings, rather, for the people of Israel, were a declaration that all they had was a gift from God. The exodus happened because of God, not them. And therefore, that their allegiance was going to be to God alone. That was the foundation of the Old Covenant. By the time we come to the New Testament, when Jesus appears as God's grace, we see Jesus reiterating these Old Covenant truths. He's talking about the same law. He's not undoing the law. He's talking about the law of Moses, the law which he gave to Moses. And yet, he is emphasizing God's intentions in that law in such a way to contradict how the people had historically misunderstood those laws. And Jesus' teaching attacks a few basic lies that his people were prone to believe about God and about their possessions. And one of those lies is that our possessions are more valuable than God that our possessions are more valuable than him. There are several parables that Jesus gives that teach this, this one fact. For example, he gives two in succession in Matthew, the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great value, both which declare that Christ is worth more than anything you have. So giving up whatever you have to get Christ is not a loss. It's a gain, says Jesus. Actually, in our gospel lesson for today from John, which we probably don't associate with giving, I think we should. Jesus approaches this Samaritan woman at the well, and he asks her to give him a drink of water. And after she comments on why he's asking her to give him something, this is what Jesus says to her. If you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, did you notice that Jesus is telling the woman to give something to him? 
It's like the very first part of their conversation. Give me something. But Jesus is also offering something to her. And what he offers to her, if she will ask for it, is far greater than what he asked her to give to him. This is what God does with us. When we learn how to give, we actually experience more of God's grace. Speaking of material possessions, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, seek first the kingdom of God, a first priority, a first importance. Give to it. And then all these other things will be added to you. Those things are coming. They're, they're, they're going to be added. But seek first the kingdom. Another falsehood that Jesus often addresses in his teaching is that God won't provide for us if we give. See, humans have this intense fear of scarcity. We believe in the economics of limited resources. If we give what we have away, we will not have enough. We will not get the things that we need. That is rational, common sense. It's just good economics. We not only feel this way about the things we need to survive, I think we also feel this way about the things that we just want for our lives. Things that we believe, and somewhat truthfully so, are going to make our lives more enjoyable and more purposeful and more comfortable. If we give away, we're not going to get those things. In John chapter 6, Jesus is teaching a crowd of people, and there are thousands of them present. Everybody in the crowd is hungry, but the only person with anything to eat is one boy. He's got five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, let's say you're the boy. Evidently, you, or more likely your mother, were the only person in that whole crowd with enough forethought to pack yourself a meal when you got hungry, because of course you were going to get hungry. And now Jesus, as nice of a guy as he seems, you've been listening to him all day, he wants you to offer your food to him for his use. Jesus wants to take what you have. And if you do that, your reason tells you you will not be eating dinner today. Duh. Common sense. Good economics. If you give up what you have, you don't have it anymore. Let me ask you this. Did the boy go hungry that day? He did not. He stuffed his face. I like to imagine this boy eating double what the lunch his mother packed for him. He stuffed his face and so did 5,000 people. How does that work? Does that make sense to you? It doesn't have to make sense. See, we fear scarcity, but scarcity is a sham when we know the Savior. He is not bound by the laws of economics. All of these things, they demonstrate how the practice of giving is actually an essential part of discipleship. It's part of saying yes to Jesus. It is an exercise in faith. I will not rely on these things. I will rely on you. And because it's an exercise of putting our faith in God, it means that giving is not just a response to God's grace. It's actually part of receiving it to begin with. And we'll see this in the next main point as well, which is this. Number two, giving trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. 
Thanksgiving trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. In Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 25, there's this young man who comes up to Jesus. And he says very earnestly, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And after the man tells Jesus how he has faithfully kept the law, and I think he probably had, Jesus tells him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. I'm sure this guy looked pretty put together on the outside. Scripture tells us he's wealthy. Scripture tells us he's upper class. He's a ruler. And evidently, he has a pretty good upstanding reputation of morality in the community. Nobody was kind of contradicting his claim that I've kept the law faithfully. In other words, he probably doesn't seem like all that much of an ungodly person, right? But how did this guy respond to Jesus' command? He walked away. He walked away sad because he was not willing to part with his possessions. In other words, his possessions were his God, right? You see, another lie that people often believe is that we can follow Jesus without giving to him. That we can follow Jesus without giving to him. It, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way any more than it works for us to say that we follow Jesus as well as Buddha or Muhammad or Ganesh, or any other deity. God does not share worship. He's not going to be split. And money is one of the easiest things for us to worship in a split sort of way. But Jesus says very unequivocally, leaving no question in our minds in Luke chapter 16, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Who's he talking about? Muhammad? Ganesh? Buddha? No, he's talking about money. Mammon, you cannot serve God and money, he says. Wow. So in this scenario with the rich young ruler, if he actually believed that his wealth was from God, that he didn't accumulate it himself, and that his allegiance was to God alone, as he was trying so desperately to claim in the law, I think this man would have been able to embrace Jesus' command as a grace. As a grace. But instead it was clear that his money was his God. There's proof because he walked away. Now, that statement, his money was his God, might not sound all that bad to our ears. I mean, we might just have compassion on this guy. I feel sorry for him. Poor buddy, like he just couldn't part with it. However, I think we have to understand what's underneath this man's love of possessions. What's underneath this man's love of possessions are worldly passions, greed, pride, materialism, self-absorption, vanity, and fear. The reason this man could not part with his possessions was not some innocent love of money. It was those things. The same is true with us. If we are not giving... There are worldly passions at work in us. There's no debate about that. What this means is that not only is the practice of giving a way of demonstrating our worship of God alone, it's actually a mechanism by which we uproot worldly passions in our lives. Are you feeling particularly greedy today? 
Are you feeling a particular fear of not having enough? Biblically speaking, this is exactly the right time to give. Because in doing so, we confront our flesh with God's grace. We refuse to believe the lies. And we believe the truth. And the truth sets us free. Thirdly and finally, there's another way the practice of giving trains us. And that is, giving trains us to be people of grace. Giving trains us to be people of grace. All that we have comes from God's grace to us. And those who receive God's grace can't help but give grace to others. That's what happens. If we are having a hard time embracing giving, it means on some level that we are having a hard time understanding the depth of what we've been giving. Meaning we are having a hard time understanding the true nature of the gospel. Good given in love to the undeserving the waters of living life, of eternal life. So another purpose of the practice of giving is to help teach us what is a grace-filled way of life. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Does that sound like scarcity to you? Paul is saying that a grace-filled way of life is one in which God's grace abounds to us so that we might abound in grace to others. Grace just keeps going and giving and going and giving. And evidently that that grace-filled abounding, Paul ties specifically to generosity, to giving. See, giving teaches us how to rely upon God's grace. And when we learn how to rely upon God's grace, we end up having more to give away because what do we have to give away? We have God's grace to give away. Giving teaches us how to be content with what we have. And when we learn contentment, the amazing thing is that we end up having gleanings, resources in our lives to now devote to others because we didn't consume it all. Giving teaches us how to pursue simplicity and how we order our lives and our schedules. And when we learn simplicity, what happens is we end up having margins in our lives in order to give to others. You see, giving teaches us to be people who look like Jesus. Jesus was not greedy. Jesus was not overscheduled. Jesus was full of grace. And so Paul writes again in 2 Corinthians, but as you all excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, in love, see that you excel in generosity as an act of grace also. Wow. Generosity makes the list with love and faith. Now for the rest of the sermon, I want to just get as practical as I can. As with confession... As with fasting, as with all the spiritual practices, there are ways in which the New Testament and the tradition of the church call us to the practice of giving. Our spiritual ancestors took part in this practice and benefited, just like we will. More specifically, I think there are three main contexts in which God's people are called to give when looking at Scripture and looking at tradition. First of all, we make a practice of giving to our local church congregation. Why is that? 
the context in which we come to worship God in word and sacrament is our ritual context for worship. Our ritual context for worship is also the place where we worship God through giving. We are, are making a statement about our allegiance today. Not just your presence here, as I said at the beginning of the service, but also what it is that you're willing to give to, today to God out of yourself. The lifting of your voice, the affections of your heart, the things you're thinking about right now, even as you resist sleep, all of that is giving to God. Now, Christ is our perfect sacrifice for sin. Scripture does not teach that we need more sacrifices. No, Christ is sufficient. But Romans 12.1, Paul tells us that we are called to offer ourselves as living sacrifices now, to give back to God out of God's grace to us. Moreover, the giving of God's people is how God provides for the ministry of his church. Did you know the government doesn't support the church in the United States? I think that's probably a good thing. Who supports the church? We do. The reason that we have bread and wine for communion, the reason we have a place to gather for worship, the reason that those who work in this place have wages for their labor is because God's people were faithful to give. You are sitting in the seats of legacy, the legacies of those who have practiced giving. That's why we're here. And I would say that our community is better because we're here. Second of all, we make a practice of giving to one another, to the vulnerable and to the strangers who are in need around us. To one another, to the vulnerable, and to the stranger who are, who are in need around us. As soon as the church was born, it's, it's so fascinating. We, we see the church instantaneously taking care of each other. The day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verses 44 to 45, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What is that about? Somehow they instinctively knew that the self-giving grace of God in Christ, which they received, merited this self-giving gracious response in them. And it meant all of them, including their wealth. The, the amazing thing about this kind of giving within the church, though, is this. If everyone in the church is willing to give whenever there is a need, it means that no one will ever go without. And that means you. All get to participate in the grace of giving. And no one has a need. Because we're one body. We're one body. Moreover, God's heart has always been for the needy. That's his heart from the start of Scripture to the end of it. And, and that includes um, how he thinks about us, but it also means how he expects his people to operate in the world, to be people about those who are needy. The New Testament makes it clear that God's people are God's instruments in that endeavor. This is why James would say in James chapter 1 that, that true religion is not going to the synagogue for worship, but caring for widows and orphans. James would say, yes, you need the synagogue, you need worship, but don't think that that's somehow divorced from caring for the poorest of the poor, the left out in our society. This is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25 that to feed the hungry, 
to give a drink to the thirsty, to clothe the naked, to welcome the stranger, to visit those who are sick or in prison is the same as doing those things for him. Of course we need a, a life of worship, but if we're not caring for, caring for the needy, Jesus is saying we are goats, not sheep. And read Matthew 25 for what happens to the goats. It's not pretty. Finally, the third context in which we make a practice of giving is the work of mission in the world. The work of mission. Now, some of this takes place in our giving to the local church. The local church, if it's operating well, is giving to mission. Some of this also takes place in the way that we give to those in need. Sometimes our, our benevolence to others is an opportunity to preach the gospel to them. It's missional. And yet the New Testament also gives us a picture of how the believers supported the ministries and the livelihoods of those who it was sending out to be missionaries, to go out and to take the gospel to the nations, which means that as a church and as we think about God's mission in the world, in order to share more broadly the gospel of grace with the people of the world, it means we need to share more broadly our resources with those who are going to them. This makes sense, right? This is how the church has understood it. There's so much that could be said about giving. Uh, perhaps you know this, maybe you don't. Money is Jesus' most common sermon topic. 25% of Jesus' parables are about money. Paul, in all of his epistles, talks about money and about the redistribution of wealth within the church more than he talks about justification by faith. Wow. Wow. So there's more to be said about such things as the biblical definition of generosity. What, what does that even mean? And about where tithing comes from and wh whether it's commanded or not and why it matters and so on and so forth. Those things will have to wait. To bring things to a close today, I want to just offer you some encouragement. Some encouragement on how to practice the practice of giving. Following Jesus through the spiritual practice doesn't just happen. We've talked about this. We have to make the intentional choice to do so. The good news is that the more we establish our practices, the more they become habits, which means the, more that we have to, the less that we have to think intentionally about doing the things that we've committed ourselves to do because they're habitual. That's a, that's a great thing when you get to that point. Yet the point is you have to choose to give. It's volitional. So my first encouragement to you is to start somewhere and to intend to grow. Start somewhere and intend to grow. If you are not giving to the local church, start somewhere. Giving is not optional, as we've talked about today. It trains us to receive God's grace, and it trains us to renounce worldly passions. So if we're not giving to the local church, if we're not giving to the needy who ask from us, if we're not giving to the work of mission, start somewhere and intend to grow. If you've already started giving, even if you're tithing, intend to grow. That's the spirit at work in the New Testament. Second of all, plan what you'll give. Plan what you'll give. It is so much harder to give when you don't know what you're committed to giving. If you've not planned what you'll give, every time the offering plate is passed, every time you pass someone is in need, you're likely not to do much of anything because you have this war of decision-making inside yourself. Gosh, should I give today? I don't know, I'm feeling guilty. God says, be a cheerful giver. Maybe I shouldn't give. Should I give? How much should I give? We are more likely to do nothing than to do a lot. 
So make a decision about how you want to give to the church and to the needy and to mission. And then when you have the opportunities to do so, you will take them because you have planned what you'll give. Number three, budget in order to give. If you do not have a budget, you need a budget. Your personal finances are tied to your spirituality. If you don't have a budget, there are a number of people in here who are really gifted with personal finances. I'd be happy to point uh, them, uh, point you to any of them. I'm, I'm serious about this. You need to be about personal finances. In your budget, you need at least one line item for giving so that when you start somewhere and plan what you'll give, you'll set those things aside. It is a way of saying these are first fruits, God. When I am paid, this amount goes there. And I'm not going to use it except for you. So budget in order to give. Number four, be prepared to give to the needy. Be prepared. This is going to take some intentionality. In our age of electronic currency, it can be hard to give to the needy when you see them. Some of us enjoy actually having this as an excuse. I'm sorry, I've only got a credit card. I can't do anything today. No cash. I want to say this. I understand why you might not give money to a person. I don't give money to a person, except in, in uh, unusual circumstances. But what you can do is buy gift cards. You can buy gift cards to restaurants and to stores, to gas stations. You can buy water bottles and you can keep them in your car with you because you are prepared to obe obey Jesus when the opportunity to obey him arises. You've planned on it and you're prepared. Make a habit, and this, this actually flows out into our conversation. Make a habit of asking your fellow believers and friends and neighbors how they're doing and if they're in need. Because if you've started somewhere and you've planned to give and you've budgeted somewhere, as soon as you hear from someone that they're in need, it's not this awkward thing where you try and leave the conversation. It's actually a, wow, I have an opportunity to give here and I'm ready to do, to do so. It's not a scary thing anymore about what are they going to exact from me. It's not that. You're giving willfully. So be prepared to give to the needy. Number five, learn how to say no in order to say yes. The next time you really want something and you're conflicted about whether to buy it, say no to it as a spiritual act of faith and then give whatever you would have spent on it away. I want to tell you, this is the equivalent of chucking a grenade at your materialism. It is good spiritual warfare. And you'll see fruit from that. Finally, teach your kids to give. Teach your kids to give. If you are a new believer, and all of a sudden you are introduced to this concept of tithing, it is a very hard thing to do. 10% is no joke. If you learn how to give when you're a child, it is so much easier for it to be a habit in your life. I am so grateful, at least now, that my parents taught me to give 10% of my birthday money and my Christmas money to the Lord. Because when I got my first job at 15, it was a habit. And it's been a habit ever since. Give your kids the grace of learning to give. You are not harming them. No matter how much they, they moan about it, you are not harming them. You are helping them. You're helping them. 
and you're helping the kingdom. So teach your kids to be faithful with their money. The final thing I'll say this morning is this. Lent, the reason we're talking about this now is that Lent provides us with a unique focus on giving things up and giving things away in order that we might receive. It's not just so that we would experience scarcity. That's not the purpose. So in Lent, I want to say there is perhaps no better time to begin this practice if you haven't already and to grow in it if you have. Let us not miss the opportunity, the invitation God is giving to us out of his grace to receive God's grace, to renounce ungodliness, and to become a people of grace. We need it, and so does the world. Amen.